and to review what we covered last session. By the way, um, I have been getting some really significant feedback that encourages me about your faith, how you're connecting uh, on a series called Christian Doctrine, what we believe, why we believe it, and how we live it out. Uh, So last session, we talked about getting to know the God of Jesus. What is God like? Here's a summary of the doctrinal statement. Crew is a ministry that Randy, uh, Sharp, Nedra, and uh, Dave and Joni are part of. Their doctrinal statement says this. There's one true God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom possesses equally all the attributes of deity. Deity is a word that means God, okay? Divine persons and the characteristics of personality. Now, Prairie College, which is where Justin Allison teaches in Alberta, Canada, their doctrinal statement about God reads like this. We believe there's one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the same in essence and co-equal in power and glory. This is what we believe at Christ Church. This is God. By the way, Walter, just shout out to you for a minute. Uh, before the service was kicking off, we were just kind of talking. He said, hey, got a question for you. And he was showing me in Genesis chapter 1 where, where you, know, you know, we believe you know, there's only one God, right? And that's kind of in our heads. And then Walter goes, Chris, it, it says, but there's this spirit of God hovering over the waters. I go, yeah, it's cool. And he scrolled down and said, look at this. It says, let us make man in our image. Those are plural pronouns. And I said, yes, isn't that amazing? And I said, in the Hebrew language, those pronouns are called a plural of majesty. This is the first hint of the Trinity, right in Genesis chapter 1. It's amazing. Uh, The fact that you're digging in the word, Walter, means so much to me. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. So, all right. Uh, In review, we learn that God is the creator of all things. God is spirit, God is love, God is a father, God knows all, he's all powerful. God is holy, God is holy. Uh, Can I just tell you, he's not like us. God is not like us at all. He's incredibly other, he is holy and God will judge. There, There will be a day where we give account of the decisions we've made on earth, things we've said, whether it's some idle chit chat, some goofy, snarky comment, or when, when we are actually pronouncing wrathful judgment through the windshield of the car. You're going to give an account for all that stuff. Kind of scary, isn't it? God is a judge, and God is holy. It's serious. By the way, uh, just, a, just a simple aside. You know, we're all on a journey, right? We're on this journey of faith, and we're... We're growing and we're seeking to please God in all things. Be people who follow Jesus, right? We're called Christian. That's what we do. We follow Jesus. All right. Can I just encourage you that God is holy and God doesn't bless unholy things? How about that? Can we just park there for a second? God doesn't bless unholy things. And so... When we enter into his son, Jesus Christ, and when we pursue him in holiness on God's terms, God blesses that. I do not believe God is glorified in human excellence. 
I do not believe that if somebody finds uh, the lid of a pen or a part of a muffin that was left over from last week or someone forgot to pick up their cup under the chair and therefore this sanctuary is not excellent, that God has somehow fled the building. I, I just don't think human excellence glorifies God. I've never thought that. I think it glorifies us. <laughs> That's who it glorifies. And a boy, you did a good job. Oh, okay, I get it. You needed a good job at things, yeah. When I go to the doctor, I want my doctor to have excellent training, you know, sure. But that's about human relationships. What really brings, brings glory to God is repentance. God is glorified in repentance. He's not glorified in, in our pursuit of perfections or... If Church A does a more excellent job at decorating the sanctuary than Church B, then there must be more God there. Than the, I, I just, I'm sorry. God is not glorified in those things. God is glorified in repentance. He's glorified in faith. I think he's glorified when we love and when we pursue him. All right, so what about Jesus? What do we know about him? The real one. How do we... How do we get at this stuff? The real Jesus name. You ready to dig in? Because I'm telling you, if you come to Christ Church, you're going to learn. That's, that's the way it is. I'm going to challenge you. I dare you to question everything. I want you to think, all right? I want your heart to be in radical pursuit of God. I want to I bless uh, you right now and pray for God's favor. Abba Father, I love you. I'm excited. I can't wait to, 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 to share what you have poured into me. And I ask for your favor. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, look at this. Doctrinal statement. This is, again, this is crude. Jesus Christ is God, the living word, who became flesh through his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and his virgin birth. Hence, he is perfect deity, perfect God, and true humanity united in one person forever. He lived a sinless life, and, a vo- and voluntarily atone for human sins by dying on the cross as a substitute. Beautiful language. Thus satisfying divine justice and accomplishing salvation for all who trust in him alone. He rose from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he lived and died. He ascended bodily into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, where he, the only mediator between God and humanity, continue to make intercession for his own. Boy, Randy, Dave, crew nailed it. They nailed it. Prairie College, we believe in the full deity and full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's fancy language. He's totally God and he's totally man at the same time. All right. Uh, we affirm his virgin births and his life, divine miracles, atoning death as our substitute. Bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, Ongoing work as our mediator and personal return in power and glory. They nail it too, just some different language. These are doctrinal statements. This stuff matters. It really matters. All right, now, what about external evidence? This is important. Um, and, you know, I addressed this a few weeks ago. If you turn to the scriptures to proof text about the scripture, what kind of argument is that called? Come on, kick it in gear. It's, an, it's internal, it's a circular argument. And in, in the big time rules of science and philosophy, you can't do that. 
because you're not using an outside source. Now, because we are people of faith, of course we do that. <laughs> we, of course we turn to the scriptures because we are convinced, and we covered this uh, during the first few sessions. I dedicated two teachings on this. The scriptures are the living, breathing word of God, so we have to turn to them. Okay? All right, so what about external evidence? Are there any historical sources that comment about Christianity that we can turn to for scientific historical verification. You ready? Buckle up. This is heavy-duty stuff. This is from Cornelius Tacitus, one of Rome's most famous historians. He said, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is an external source verifying the historicity of Jesus and his death. This is important. Okay? There's external evidence. How about this one? This is from Suetonius, one of the great, uh, great historians as well. Because the Jews of Rome caused continuous disturbance, and it's Christian Jews, disturbances at the instigation of Christus. That's a corrupt spelling of, of Christ the Jews were expelled from this city. And that is historically documented at about 52 AD, the Jews were kicked out, 49, 52 in that era. Okay, check this out. This is from uh, Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew who worked for the emperor, Vespasian. There was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Wow. External evidence. Check this one out. This is from Pliny the Younger. They're not sure what to do with these Christians. What to do with them? The Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an alternate verses, a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to, do, not to be involved in any wicked deeds. Not to any wicked deeds. And it goes on to describe these things. Christians are getting a reputation. Check out this. No search should be made for these people when they are denounced and found guilty. They're arrested for being Christians. They're found guilty. They must be punished. With the restriction, however, that when, they, when the party denies himself to be a Christian and shall give proof of his denial, that is by adoring our gods, he should be pardoned on the ground of repentance. You're arrested. Your accusations are you're a Christian. If you denounce your faith in Christ and start adoring the gods of Rome, you, that's called repentance. You're set free. This goes on to say, by the way, that the ones who don't renounce their faith are the real Christians. This is, actually, this is historically verifiable. All right. Just a couple more. I do not wish, therefore, that the matter should be passed by without examination. So he says, he's being advised, Emperor Hadrian, if therefore the provincials can clearly evince their charges against the Christians... So as to answer before the tribunal, let them pursue the course, this course only, but not by mere petitions and mere outcries against the Christians. 
For it is far more proper if anyone should bring an accusation that you should examine it. You just can't arrest Christians and be brutal. You've got to examine. All right. Look at this. This is amazing. This is from the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is like saying uh, it's the ongoing commentary and historical writings of, of the Jews based on the Old Testament. They, this is what the Talmud says about Jesus. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried. He is going forth to be stoned because he, was, he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. They accused him of being a magician and leading Israel astray. That went down in the Jewish writings in the Talmud. Okay? about Jesus. Wow. How about this one? This is Lucian. These misguided creatures start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they were converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Wow. Wow. Ex- and there's actually more, but I, I need to tap the brake. There's external evidence of the historical reliability of Jesus and the gospel records for that matter. So what about this? Let's dig in here. What does Jesus say about himself? All right. Isn't it great? Have you ever had, an, have you ever had a, a, a relationship where someone is making accusations or there's rumors about you or they're making statements about who they think you are and you want to say, hey, you know what? Why don't they come to me and hear it straight from me? I'll give them the truth. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Well, if we could ask Jesus, tell us about yourself, what would he would say? He'd say this. He believed that he was sent by God to earth to redeem the world from sin and the bonds of Satan. Look at this, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus believed he was sent. There was a mission. There was purpose in his life. All right. How about this one? He believed that his words, his teachings, were simply God's words. Jesus was telling people what God told him. He was literally parroting or verbatim repeating the words of God. Look at this, John, 28, or John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. So when Jesus taught a parable about, behold, a man went out to sow, that is a story his dad taught him. He's repeating what his dad said. All right. John 12, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Pretty serious, isn't it? Jesus was convinced that he is speaking the words of his Father. All right? How about this? Jesus believed his words gave life. In fact, they were so life-giving, he, he told a story this way. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. In other words, Jesus, his words, which are from God, are like rock. They're like a solid foundation. Conversely, you hear the words and ignore them, and it's as though your life is being built on sand. And the same problems come, and your life is destroyed. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus believed his words gave life. He believed that. He believed this. These are statements that reveal his identity. He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. I am the light of the world. I am before Abraham. I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He repeats it. I am the vine. I am the Alpha and Omega. In case you're not sure what those words mean, in the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter. In the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter. He's saying, I'm the beginning and the end, and I'm everything in between. Uh, In other words, I am the first and the last. I am the root and the descendant of David. This is what Jesus believed about himself. And so if we're going to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what does he say about himself? You have to go to this. This is who he is. How about this one? He believed his words were like seed. Behold, a man went out to sow. And he sows on hard ground. He sows on rocky ground. He sows on ground that has thorns and thistles in it. But then there's good soil. The word that is the seed that is cast out is the words of Jesus. All right. Look at verse thir- chapter 13. He repeats this idea of a seed. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which men took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Could you please listen? Can you do something for me? If, if, if I've already lost it, sorry. <laughs> I'm never going to apologize for the truth, okay? I'm not going to do it. But if you don't have your heart, I want you to listen closely to this. Jesus believes that his words are truth. Okay? He believed it. And he believes that his words, like truth, or as truth, are like a seed. And when you plant a seed, it grows. Okay? Even if you get the tiniest word of Jesus, if you can just get pure truth, And if you would be willing to let that take root in your heart, your life will change. It will grow and it will overtake the garden of your life. When you get the kingdom inside, you're never the same. Okay? Do you understand? Jesus gives you something nobody else gives. Nobody. Marriage is not the answer. Money's not the answer. Having children is not the answer. Okay? And the way, the way I work in my counseling sessions, if you hear strange noise, noise from therapy, it means I'm right. Okay, that's what it means. That's right. The motorcycle thing comes at the intersection, right? Over and down to it. This is the truth. 
There's nothing that can replace Jesus. And for some of you, your heart is so hard, it's closed. And when the words of Jesus fall on your hard heart, who's there? What do you think, this, what do you think he meant when the, when the bird's coming and snatch up the seed that's on the hard soil? Do you know what that's about? Who's the bird that snatches the seed on the hard soil? Who is it? It's, it's Satan. Do you not understand that Satan is listening? <laughs> you get it? Okay. And when the truth is spoken and the word of God is spoken here, what do you think he's going to do later? Sit back passively? For you who have a hard heart, what is said here can be snatched away in 15 seconds or the minute you walk out this door. Okay? The truth, the seed of Jesus, the truth, when it hits your soul and you, okay, okay, okay I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to get it. I believe. I believe. But you're so full of rocks. You're so shallow in your faith. The sin is the, the pressures of life. If the sun bears down on you, it can't grow. There's no watering. Too shallow. You're not taking it seriously. Some of you, you have hearts so full of weeds and thorns in the roots of all the worries and pressures of life that even if you're willing to accept the truth, you do. By the time you're out of here, it's as though you're a functional atheist because you're so worried about everything. You're so caught up with the mess and the worries and anxieties of life that the seed is just simply choked out. And then you're frustrated because there's no fruit. And then you think you could point a finger at him and say, life is not fair. And guess what? Ooh, Satan's got you right where he wants you. You're bitter. And he's got you. Because when you're bitter, you're blind. Bitter people are blind from the truth. But when you have a heart that's tender and repentant, remember, repentance glorifies God. And you're willing to receive the word, and you're willing to say, change me, here I am, change me. And you leave here, it stays with you. And your life radically changes. And you're the one that bears fruit some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Jesus believed his words were like seeds. He believed fear was an illogical response to who he was. <laughs> when the disciples saw him walk on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's ghosts, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, and do not be afraid. If you get who Jesus is, fear doesn't make sense. Fear is not a logical response to Jesus. Check this out. Jesus believed faith was the logical response to who he was. Faith. Jesus went out from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on the Son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe, that's a concept of faith, that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Beautiful. Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Jesus believed. He knew exactly what corrupts the heart of man. 
there are some Jews, the religious leaders, that were out to be critical, and they noticed that the disciples of Jesus didn't wash their hands from here to here in that order, not here to here, but here to here. And therefore, they had unclean hands, therefore, they were eating uh, food that made food unclean, and they were bringing uncleanness in their body. Their idea is that outside is unclean, don't let the unclean in. Jesus says, no, you're going to go backwards, it's the other way around. Unclean, uncleanness comes out of you, it didn't come into you. So Peter said, please explain the parable about the washing of the hands thing. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus believed. He knew exactly what corrupted the human heart. And isn't it interesting? Wouldn't it be, isn't Satan one slick dude? He makes us worry about all the stuff on the outside, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, you know about that, Jesus. If he can just get you to focus on the outside, or if he can just get you to focus on other people, he's got you beat. Satan has you beat because you're not willing to take a real look at what's on the inside. And you'll waste all kinds of emotional energy. You'll waste time. You'll waste money on stuff that's on the outside. And you will miss what's actually going on inside your heart. This is why repentance glorifies God. Okay? Not excellence. Look at this one. Jesus believed he had authority to forgive sins. He knew what was wrong with man, and he knew how to fix man. Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? Why? You can't say that. He's blaspheming. He's, he's saying evil, wicked things about God. You can't do that. God forgives sins. Only God forgives sins. Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Ooh, isn't it from the heart the wicked stuff comes? The unclean stuff? Which is easier to say that the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say get up and pick up your pallet and walk? By the way, that's a real question. You tell me right now, come on, think. What's easier, to say you're forgiven or get up and walk? Now the guy's crippled. Which one's easier, Deb? Which one? Why do you say your sins are forgiven, right? Anybody can say that. How do you prove it? You don't. You don't. You don't prove it at all. So watch what he does. Okay, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I said, you get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went home. And the Bible study's over. We're done. You know why? He proved the easy thing by doing the hard thing. He proved he has authority to forgive sins. Can, I, can we pause just for a second? It's a good, good place to pause right now. I know you. Dear people. You battle with such ongoing guilt 
you have no joy in your faith. Please hear, Jesus forgives sins. And if you are born again, if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't have to walk in, in demonic guilt and oppression and live as this condemned, horrible person. You don't have to live that way. Here we go again. Satan wants to steal the word of God from you because he, Satan knows the power and the authority of the words of God. God can speak it and it happens. All right? And he wants to do his little best to rob you, to make you dull of hearing. That is why Jesus said things like this. If you've got ears, you need to listen. He has ears to hear. Let him hear. Satan knows this. He wants to steal truth away from you. Satan wants to get you so bitter that you become blind. Satan wants to get you so focused on everybody else around you, the outside stuff, that you can't deal with the inside stuff. And if you have inside stuff, you can run to Jesus because he forgives sins. He is the answer to what is broken in the human heart. He believed he was the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world would be, uh, might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does God say about Jesus? We looked at an external source, external sources. We looked at the internal evidence, what Jesus said about himself. What does God say? He says this. He says, Jesus, Jesus is his beloved son in a cloud form overshadowing them. And the voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. God is well pleased with Jesus. Matthew 3, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. People should listen to him. That's true. Look at Matthew 17. This is my beloved son with whom I'm open. Listen to him. And then Luke 9. Jesus is the chosen one. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is what God actually says about Jesus. All right. He's the beloved son. God is pleased in him. Listen to him because he's the chosen one. That's why he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's why. Do you understand? Now I want you to lock, lock this, okay? Lock this down. God is well pleased with Jesus. You need to understand that. Do you think that God is well pleased? Can we be serious? Is God well pleased with Chris Perry? And my morality? Come on, I want an answer. Yes. No. I just say yes because your, your, your sins have been forgiven. You're close. You're close. You're close. I'm pushing you. Is God well pleased in me in and of myself? No. That's the only, if, if God is pleased in him, and he is, it is only because I'm in his son Jesus. Because God is well pleased with Jesus. 
He is the sinless, spotless, unblemished lamb. I am not. You aren't either, right? But God is glorified in repentance. That's the only way I am acceptable. That's the only way. I've been made clean by the blood of the lamb. Do you understand? Okay. And I have full and radical acceptance with God because God is pleased with his son. And God has taken that and he has placed it over my life. And he says, Chris, you're forgiven. I love you. I accept you because you're in my son. Do you understand? This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what it means to be born again. If you have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never entered into Christ, please do not, do not put that off. Please, please don't, don't leave here and let the enemy snatch that away from you. Or, and one of the biggest deceptions of all is that your morality is so good that God owes you acceptance. You're so squeaky clean morally. <laughs> oh, wow. You're, I, thought, I thought the only one I was pleased with is Jesus, but well, I should be pleased with you too. Look at you. You've never sinned. How great is that? No, not happening. Not happening. He knows what's wrong with us on the inside. You are the gifted body of Christ. You have just heard the truth of the living God. His words are like seeds. His words are truth. They're literally the things that he heard God say to him, and he's passing those on to us. The logical response to Jesus is faith. It's not fear. If you understood who Jesus really is, if we did, how would we live? What difference would this make? You're the body of Christ. Care for yourselves. We are obligated to follow him. How do we do it? How do we deal with our fears, our faith issues? How do we deal with all this stuff? <coughs> Pastor Chris, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, God tells us, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart. And that is Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Why does this matter? What difference does he make? I think that analogy with the weeds and everything choking us and that spirit we have inside of us is very true of myself. Um, but I think all these things Jesus said is for our peace and our good. Like, all of those words that he says he is, that should overwhelm us and give us an eternal peace that helps those weeds just get choked out themselves, you know? Yes. I yeah. feel like that's really good for me, just to comfort myself with that. That's a faith response, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. By the way, C.S. Lewis, right? You know about that dude. He said this. He presented what he called a trilemma, a threefold problem, all right? And what do you do with the historical Jesus? And he said this. Number one, he's either a lunatic. <laughs> Jesus is flat out crazy. 
right? He's a Palestinian Jew that spent too much time in the sun, and he's crazy. He's a religious nut. If he is, walk away. All right? Or number two, second of the trilemma, is that he's a liar. Jesus lied. This is all a lie. It's all a scam and a lie. Or the third option is that he really is Lord. He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He is Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. And if you understood who the real Jesus is, what difference would it make in our lives, in our marriages? As a single person, what difference would Jesus make in your life? And how should the, the church live this out and be the salt of the earth, not the world? Counsel yourselves. You're the church. What are we doing this stuff? Frank, you have been sighted. Do you even want the bread? Are you hungry? Yeah. It's a truism that we tend to pursue what we really want. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus, I think he could read right through the mess that was in his heart that this guy suffered from idolatry and greed and put all of his his, his self-esteem on what he owned. And at that point, he walked away. He would not follow Jesus. Yeah. He, said he, he said he wanted bread, but no, he didn't. Someone else. How would we do Barbara? Well, you know, you have to look into the meanings of the word, the bread of life, the essence of life, uh, the light of the world. He's going to show us how to live. Uh, the good shepherd, he's going to take, he takes care of us. The true vine, you can't do anything. So um, I, I had a, one conversation with my dear friends. We were talking about Bible translations and things. And they said, have you ever heard about the translation, Jesus is the sweet potato of life? And I said, no, I have not. Please tell me about this. 
And so this is what happened. There was a translator that went into Papua New Guinea and was trying to work with translating John uh, 6.35, I am the bread of life. And when they came to translating that into this native language, they couldn't do it. That was untranslatable. You're smiling. Do you know this story, Alicia? It's so cool. And, and so this is what happened. In this culture, in this culture, in New Guinea, only the extreme rich even have access to bread. The extreme rich, the high-level elite. But guess what everybody gets to live on? They go completely abundantly in New Guinea, this area. And this guy said, that's it. And so when he translated John 6.35, he said, Jesus said, I am the sweet potato of life. That's actual <laughs> translation. And it's true. Because, because it, now think about it. Get this. Don't you think sometimes that it, it is like the, uh, the really good looking and really wealthy, they somehow have access to better life than you do? <laughs> you know, and, and like God, if you're morally sweepy clean, God owes you. Like the elite somehow get the good stuff, right? Wrong. That is so not true. Jesus is the sweet potato of life. He's the thing that brings life to the poorest, weakest, most dishonored native in Papua New Guinea than the person that, that lives in Little Rock, Arkansas and can you know, be at Fresh Market and just work through all the choices of bread. You know, do I want the pumpernickel or do I want the, the, the onion? What, what about the olive oil? Oh, no, that looks so good. And we've got all this wheat and all these grains to make all these elaborate breads. But in their culture, only the elite get to have that. Jesus is the sweet potato. So they also translated, you can't live by sweet potato alone? <laughs> would, I'm assuming so. That would be good. That would be good. Man does not live by sweet potatoes alone. That's good. <laughs> What difference does Jesus make in your life? Philip? I kind of have a question I want to ask, just because I'm really curious what y'all respond to. Uh, I think we all believe that Christ resides in us. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And he is the goodness in our lives. Uh, what evidence proof do you see that reaffirms that you know Christ is in your heart? What's the evidence of being a follower of Jesus? Yep, okay. Your brother just asked you a question. Own it. What's the proof? What's the evidence? He gives us a new spirit. What's that? He gives us a new spirit. <clears throat> okay. Change. I mean, when I accepted Christ, my family said they could see a huge difference okay. in how I acted okay. and how I responded. Mm -hmm. Just. So for me, it always goes back to the parable of the, the person of the king a lot. And when he was forgiven, he goes out there and strangles his brother for a little bit. And I think when you truly get Jesus, you realize how much you've been forgiven. Yeah. yeah. And you don't go out and strangle your brother. Stop strangling people. That's evidence you follow Jesus. Well, <laughs> figuratively, but we, can get more, we can get more literally. <laughs> well, you are willing to because you realize that your sins that you could never pay back were forgiven you. And and to and so your your heart and your disposition towards people, even if you get angry, even if you get hurt, even if you're mad, you realize that, that um, 
You're speaking wisdom, Justin. Do you remember some of the math on that, that parable about forgiveness? If you, if you crunch out the numbers, the man owed the king, are you ready for this? 52, it's over 52 million days of labor. And his buddy owed him like a month, you know, 30 days of labor. It is absolutely radical, profound debt that you would owe a king 10,000 talents. It would take like 3,000 generations to pay that back. Multiple times. Maybe getting the numbers wrong. What I want you to know, it's over 52 million days of labor as Cambodia just like a month later. It's, it's, it's insane, the, the radical nature of forgiveness. Okay, Justin, if you're onto something, and you are, that if God has forgiven you, you ready? I'm going to put you on the spot just for a second because we're all Justin right now, okay? If God has forgiven you 52 million days of labor and Alyssa sins against you for 30 days of labor, what difference would that make in your marriage to Alyssa? Huge. And if God has forgiven you 52 million days, why would you ding him for 30 days? Does this make sense? So what functional difference, Philip is asking, what's the functional difference of having Jesus inside of you and how does it affect your marriage? Or how does it get being single? Yes. Children in a in a way that's that's 
yet they own restaurants that feed people <laughs> this way. And so, I, you know, initially I was offended, but then I was like, just what Anna said, I looked at that and she is speaking such body image issues into her children that she doesn't even know. Yeah. You know, and so you, you do, you look at, listen for, you listen for the deeper meaning of what people mm-hmm. are saying. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a whole different way of looking. Yeah, yeah. Frank, you said something really interesting. Um, sometimes in our theology, we make out you know God to be uh, or Satan to be like this boxing thing, right? In this corner, Satan weighing one hundred and ninety nine pounds. He's got a fifty four inch reach and all this stuff. And in the other corner, Jesus. 200 pounds and a 54 and a half inch reach and somehow it's this epic battle between almost co-equal forces and somehow Jesus gets a lucky punch in. No, that is, that's Carmen. That's, that was like 30 years ago Christianity, a video about Carmen, you know, Carmen did. No, no. But Frank is on to something. Satan is not God, you know, slightly less than. He's not like everywhere, all-powerful. Yeah, how can, how can Frank be suffering from temptation in Kentucky when Chris is being tempted in Little Rock at the same time? You know, it's, Satan can't be everywhere. But, but, you ready for this? I think Satan, in a way, is everywhere. You know why? Because he's got a network of a whole, yes, he's got a network of a whole lot of people, and he can make sure the damage he's done in that lady that thought she was better than everybody is right there with you at just the right time. The network is profound. Boy, did C.S. Lewis write a book about this. It's called The Screwtape Letter. <coughs> wow. Right. So here we go. Hey, Chris. Yes, sir. Yes. Did you go back to like the third one of the first slide, the, the historical evidence, like the first or second slide? Yes, sir. Well, you got now. Does anybody appreciate just how hard I work? Can you see all these slides? I'm, I'm busting my butt for you guys, and I tell you, uh, you know, you better like what I put on the table. I'm telling you. Uh, okay. This is the first slide. Okay, we're there. Hold on. Uh, so this is 112 AD. Uh, this is we're 2,000 years out from Jesus right now, and this is the observations of Christians that were clubbed. Yes. Never committed any fraud, theft, or adultery. Never to falsify their word nor deny. This is in the. This is what the. A generation out from Jesus were doing what their commitment was in a time of way worse persecution. Intense persecution, yes. That's the, that is, stuff like this is what, at great cost, people were following the the example, not that they didn't see it firsthand, but they they may have known people who did. Yes, yes. So I think this is a, Looking historically, that's yes. That was outwardly to observers what Christians, followers of Christ, were were committed to do. That was mm. Thank you, Daniel. Philip, Jesus would make short work of it by saying, "You'll know the tree by its fruit." Right now, Jesus is the ideal model for us. He is. This is the basis of Christ's team. Okay. 
If he says, look, everything I say, I just heard my dad say, I'm just repeating what I heard dad say. The stories he told me, I'm just telling you. The things that I do, I, that's just what I saw dad do. So if we are Jesus followers, we do the very same thing. I'll tell you what, you know who gets this thing about discipleship? I see bro, is Stephen. Because he and about six guys are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. So you want to know what it's like to look like a Christian? Forgive your enemies. Fast in the right way. Pray in the right way. Give in the right way. Don't have a heart motive. Do that stuff. Yeah, there it is. Somebody begs you to go one mile, go two. Somebody jerks a coat off your back, hey, you want the shirt also? Here you go. Someone slaps you on this cheek, turn the other. This is the fruit of being a Christian. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know them by their fruits. Uh, one of you mentioned uh, Barbara, John 15. If, if you attach to him, if you're a branch on the vine, you'll bear much fruit. Absolutely. We could go on. I, could, I literally could dedicate the rest of my life, every teaching, to just walking through the Gospels, and I still wouldn't get at the, the full depths of what this thing's about. All right, you ready for this? Are you a real follower of Jesus Christ? Or do you toy with religion? Or are you here out of social obligation? Are you a true follower of Jesus? All right. Do you forgive like Justin? Who, you spoke for all of us, Justin. Boy, bitterness is powerful. And it comes from within. You spoke for all of us. Jesus will make a radical difference in every relationship. Everyone, all right? Do you live in fear or do you live in faith? Uh, I'm going to be at the back. And if you, if you are not sure what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to come talk to me, all right? Let me bless you. Abba, Father, I ask that you would rebuke the enemy and that the truth would not be snatched away because of a hard heart or a heart that's just shallow and has, a, has a, a foolish kind of faith, nor the heart that is so full of anxiety and the worries and pressures of this life that they're more concerned about the world than they are your kingdom. I pray that every heart here is a tender heart, good soil, willing to receive the word and plant it that saves our soul. Abba, Father, thank you for Jesus. What would I be without him? Abba, Father, please, we worship you now. Amen.